Last Sunday, we ended in Matthew 5 with the verse, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I thought after reading that, we were already at a place where we were in over our heads. But Jesus isn't done preaching yet. The sermon still has a few more points in it. And it's not going to get easier. And what we have to consider, I think, is this. Are these words of Jesus just a goal that we should aspire to? Or is it actually possible to realize this in the power of the Holy Spirit? That's, that's the question. You know, we, we come to Scripture and we can say, um, that's the ideal, but we can't ever get there, right? So we just do our best. Or we can say, um, wow, this ethic is higher than I can reach, either in performance or even concept. And so I have to ask, how is it possible? And what will God have to do in me to enable this to be true of me? So I'd like to read in Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. I'd like to invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel as you're able. I'm not going to read every verse in the remainder of this chapter, but lots of them. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 31. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, 
turn the other also. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So this is the Sermon of the Mount, part three. Jesus is continuing to tell his disciples and everyone who's gathered around him what this life in the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. So we're, we're getting words from the mouth of Jesus as much as we can have as exact words. Here it is. And we have to decide what this all means. Now, Jesus is a rabbi. He's coming as a teacher. He's teaching the people around him the implications of the law. Okay, now I want you to think about this for a second. There's a lot of conversation in the society today about what the United States Constitution really means. What was in the mind of the original founders or how do we apply that today? I mean, there's a lot of debate because after all, the Constitution was written more than five years ago, right? It was written like 250 some years ago. You can do the math. Right, And it's hard for us to get back 250 years into the minds of those original founders and figure out what they really meant by this clause. Or they couldn't have thought about this because this hadn't been invented yet. And, and, and how do you interpret this document that's a couple hundred years old at best? Okay, So now here's Jesus sitting on a mountainside talking to the people that are gathered there. And he is teaching them what the law means. How long ago was the law given to Israel? A couple thousand years ago, okay? And Jesus is trying to course correct where the law has taken them, okay? Imagine what the Supreme Court session would look like if tomorrow, when they convened, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison all showed up to court. And the justices are talking about what the original founders meant and those guys say, hey, wait a second. Let me tell you what we meant, right? Because then we would like have it from the horse's mouth exactly what those founders meant when they wrote these particular words. Do you understand that that's where we are today? This is Jesus, the word of God, explaining to the Jewish people what the law was about. They have the guy who wrote it there with them saying, this is what it's supposed to be. So there isn't any argument anymore about what the law meant or what the implications of the law are. Jesus is saying, hey, this is what I meant. When I wrote that, when I put that all together, 
This is what I was driving for. This is what I was hoping to create in you. This is what I'm hoping you would aspire to. And so Jesus gives us all of these amazing words. And now we have to decide what it is we're going to do with all these words. And so Jesus says things like, don't murder. True, that's what I said. But what we're really after here is love between you and others. And, and well, of course you can't murder someone you love, right? And so the law just sort of gives the framework for something that is deeper than that. When there is a rift between you and someone else, you ought to be the one to take responsibility for the healing and mending of that rift. You need to, it's not just don't murder, it's your job to be the peacemaker in those relationships. And so this may be what the law said, but the implication was much greater than just the bare bones statement of the law. Jesus says, don't commit adultery, be faithful to your spouse, true, but also don't lust after people who aren't your spouse and don't divorce, even if Moses gave permission for divorce in certain patterns. Because, well, divorce leads to brokenness and pain and to a life lived beneath the privileges of God's children. And I wonder if, if the children of God understood the message of Christ enough to realize that long before divorce ever happens in many relationships between people in the church, there has to be an understanding of what the message of love for others means in a marriage. It's not just love others dash strangers. It's just love others. And that means within the context of our marriages, we demonstrate love for one another. And when you start to contemplate divorce, and you know divorce leads to brokenness and pain, somewhere along the line you have to say, if I were to divorce my spouse, I would be causing them pain and brokenness. And if I really love them, I wouldn't cause them pain and brokenness. And maybe it's better for me to try to work at improving this relationship than actually causing more pain because, oh my gracious, Jesus is going to say these terrible words, love your enemy. And some of us know what it means to be married to our enemy, right? Some of, some of you may have been in a relationship where it's gotten to that point. But if the ethic of the kingdom is we love others, that means I'm doing things consistent with that love which means to bless, encourage, and support that spouse, even if they've become my enemy at the moment, right? And so this ethic of Jesus has the power to change things. Jesus says, don't swear falsely. Don't lie. That's not news. The, 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 the Old Testament taught us that clearly. But he says, just don't swear at all, okay? Because the truth of the matter is, you don't have much control over the circumstances of anything. 
You're, you're pretty weak folk. Can't control time, no miraculous power, limited in all these kinds of ways. He says, you can't even change the color of your hair. Well, maybe we can do that now. Um, at least temporarily, as long as we have hair. He says, don't swear at all. Don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by Jerusalem. Don't Just say, this is what I intend to do. And then do it. Keep your word. Say yes, say no. Let that be the end of it. And if something happens out of your control that you can't keep your word, you apologize and you make it right. Because we just need to be more simple and just tell the truth to each other. Be honest to one another. Jesus says, the law said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I say to you, turn the other cheek. That's not a fashionable position today. Jesus says you were taught to love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. If you only love your friends, everybody does that. You're not salt and you're not light when you just love your friends. But if you love and are kind and compassionate to everyone, you have a chance now to be salt and light. You have a chance to stand for something different. A different ethic appears the minute we intentionally choose to love enemies. These are hard things to live up to. And Jesus is changing the foundation for citizens of the kingdom of God to a foundation of love in all of our actions and in all of our pursuits. These aren't the hardest words I find in scripture though. So you know know 1 Corinthians 13, right? Our favorite uh, wedding passage that was never designed for weddings. If you think we've had hard teaching already, wrestle with these. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Any one of those four words is enough for a whole sermon, isn't it? Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So when Jesus tells us to to love our neighbors as ourselves, to to love our enemies, and then we get this kind of a definition of love? I don't measure up to this. 
I grieve when I read that definition of love. Because love may be patient, but Dan Whitney is not patient. I sometimes insist on my own way. It's not irritable. How on earth do I hope to measure up to this? Is this another one of those passages where the apostle just sets out the goal that we're supposed to work toward? Or is this a passage where this is achievable by the grace of the Holy Spirit? And if you think I'm asking that as a real question, that is not true. It is the second. This is possible by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The first thing I think I have to reckon with is the idea of the excuses and the rationalizations I make within myself to say, well, God could never really expect that of me. I, I, I've got to deal with that candidly. I've got to say, have I ever really believed that this was true for me or should be true for me? Do, do I even aspire to this? Or do I live in the land of this is how I am, you have to deal with it? I mean, that's the way many folks abdicate responsibility for their actions, right? I can be irritable because I just have this Irish temper and you have to just deal with that or, or I just have this Italian inability to keep my mouth shut or I just have this Polish whatever. We got excuses this long, right? For why we have an exemption clause from this. Or we say, well, God... God will excuse my shortcomings over here because I do X, Y, Z for the church. You know, I, I have built up uh, indulgences, if you will. I have built up credit in my relational account. So I don't really have to pay attention to this because, you know, God will wink at me because he knows I'm one of his. If you were reading your Bible, when I read the passage from Matthew, you know I skipped the last verse in the chapter, right? You, you saw that omission, you caught that. I thought I'd save it for a little later, like now. Matthew 5, 48, after that whole teaching we just heard, when we were all standing for what seemed like days. Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a really high bar, isn't it? We Nazarenes, we Wesleyans, we believe that means a perfection of love. God is love. God perfectly loves. And we're being called to love others in the way that God 
loves. That love doesn't come naturally to us. It's the gift of the Spirit. Listen to some what other uh, listen to some other verses from the New Testament that help us understand that this love is gifted to us. This is Romans 5, 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. The source of the love of God is the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts. Galatians 5.22, you know this verse. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, which means joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the Spirit produces in us. So if we're going to have any hope of loving folks to the degree that we are called to love folks, it will be because the Spirit enables us to do so. You're saying, is that the only way we can love anybody? No, of course not. Jesus already told us that regular folks love other folks all the time. That's part of relationships that are human. Everybody loves folks. Some folks Folks that love you, folks that are kind to you, folks that take you out to pizza. We love those kind of folks. The measure of our love is can we love folks that drive us nuts, who cause us pain, who betray us, who cheat us, who don't meet our expectations, who in our opinion don't deserve to be loved. Can you love those folks or not? That's... That's the question. And what does the exercise of loving folks who are enemies look like practically? How, how do you approach that? I mean, at some point in your mind, when you're having contentious conversations with someone, or you get to the place where you recognize, oh yeah, that person really is my enemy. They hate me, they're trying to make my life miserable. Life would be much better if they were not around. At what point in that argument does the light come on in our heads and say, oh, this person is an enemy and Jesus told me what I'm supposed to do with enemies. And then I have to embark on a journey inside of myself, right? I've got to decide how will I treat an enemy? I've been thinking about this passage in 2 Corinthians 12 where um, Paul talks about being given a thorn in the flesh. And he talks about um, praying that God would remove this thorn of the flesh, this irritant or whatever it was. And he says, after praying about it, he felt like the Lord said to him, this is 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul responds by saying, so I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
Therefore, I am content with weaknesses. And I've been thinking to myself, what is it that enemies and difficult folks with whom I have a relationship produce in me? What, what is the result of having enemies? Well, you have to think about that a little bit. I mean, you've heard the phrase, boy, that person really knows how to push my buttons, right? And you start thinking of that person as an irritant, as an enemy, and you say, well, what, what do these interactions have the possibility of producing in me? And I think what Paul is saying here is that uh, enemies have the power to draw us closer to God, to rely on his strength more, if we take it seriously that our responsibility is to love them. Because the minute you start dealing with enemies, you recognize right away you don't have the ability to love them, right? You can't pull that off. And so how do you get to the place where you can pull that off? I'm thinking that an enemy should drive you to your knees in prayer and humility, saying, Lord, I know what my responsibility is. I heard your word. I can't do this. You're going to have to help me. You're going to have to guard my words. You're going to have to guard my actions. You're going to have to guard my thoughts. You're going to have to help me walk this pathway because this is much more than I can do. This is too difficult for me. It's interesting in the passage where Paul talks about the thorn, he says this, to keep me from being too elated, and when he says elated, he's talking about his religious experience, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Paul actually gets to the place where he says the thorn is God's gift to him. The enemy is God's gift to him. God is using this difficult, hard relationships to transform the character of Paul. Now, Paul also says in the passage, I prayed three times for God to get rid of this, right? So it's not like we're saying, Lord, give me some enemies so I can grow a backbone and draw closer to you. That's, that's not what this is about. Because we don't want enemies, right? We want to see our enemies transformed into friends. We want the, the Spirit of God to work in us to actually help us be loving towards these folks. After humbly admitting we don't know how to do it. But somewhere along the line, we have to embrace the idea that, that we have to love the way God loves. We have to love the way Jesus loves and describes in this sermon. In my humanity, I hate this verse of, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. I mean, don't I have a right to strike back? 
Maybe it's not physical violence. Don't I have a right to give away a piece of my mind? Don't I have a right to set the record straight? Don't I have the right to tell everybody about the injustice done to me? I guess not. And if I'm going to overcome the desire in me to set the record straight, I love reading about the life of Dallas Willard. He's passed now to glory now, but um, I read of a conversation he had with someone. And a friend of his was observing the conversation. These two were arguing back and forth about some point of scripture or whatever. And finally, Dallas Willard just stopped talking. And his friend who was witnessing the conversation said, why did you stop speaking there? And uh, his friend said, I mean, you had clearly had the stronger position. You um, were making much more sense than he was. He was getting all flustered. You were right. He was wrong. Why did, why did you stop speaking and not defend yourself further? And Dallas were, looked at his, his buddy and said, well, I'm practicing the spiritual discipline of not having to have the last word. Do we really believe that Jesus means what he says when he tells us to love our neighbors? Well, yeah, we could believe that. Do we really believe what Jesus says when he tells us to love our enemies? We ought to believe that. Do we believe it enough to ask the Holy Spirit to help us put it into practice. Twyla Paris used to sing this song that has um, become a part of my prayer in recent days. Thank you for this thorn embedded in my flesh. I can feel the mystery my spirit is made fresh. You are sovereign and forever wise. I can see this miracle opening my eyes to a proud heart, so quick to judge, laying down crosses and carrying grudges. The veil has been torn, and I thank you for this thorn. Thank you for this thorn, fellowship of pain, teaching me to know you more, never to complain. Thank you for this love planted in my side, faithful, patient miracle opening my eyes. I never thought I'd say it without reservation, but I'm truly grateful for this piercing revelation of a proud heart so quick to judge, laying down crosses and carrying grudges. The veil has been torn, and I thank you for this thorn. I get the impression that Twyla thought you could only carry so much, and if he had 
your hands full of grudges and unforgiveness. There's no room for carrying crosses that Christ might assign us to carry. I'd like to invite you to sing a song with me in closing today. And I would like to invite you to take seriously the words of Jesus. I would invite you to entertain the notion that he meant every word he said and that he's building his kingdom on the foundation of love for everyone. Not just some folks, not just the folks you like, not just the folks who take you out to pizza, not just the folks who live near you, but the folks who you can't understand, you can't abide, that you don't like, that are your enemies, that give you a rough time all the time, that that kind of love for others is the foundation of his kingdom. And to the extent that we have trouble managing that, that's the extent to which we must be daily on our knees asking for the power of the Holy Spirit to embrace the vision of the kingdom that Jesus has. I don't like thorns, I don't like pain, I don't like enemies, but I am praying, Lord, help me. Help me to read that definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 every day and remember that love is not arrogant, boastful, rude, impatient, irritable. And Lord, by your mercy, give me your grace to live up to the standard you have set for your children. Let's pray and we'll sing. Heavenly Father, forgive us. You know how far short of this we tend to fall. Do not permit complacency in us, Lord. Do not let our excuses and rationalizations stand Point out in us the places where our love is inadequate. And help us, Lord, to be children of your love so that we can be participants in your kingdom. Pour your love into us by your spirit, I pray. sing a song together and I would encourage you whether it's in your pew or in the altar that you find a place of prayer and invite the spirit to speak as we sing here I am down on my knees again 
surrendering all, surrendering all. Find me here, Lord, as you draw me near, desperate for you, desperate for you. mercy and grace unfold I hunger and thirst I hunger and thirst with arms stretched wide I know you hear I cry speak to me
my pray that prayer that Lent for us this year will be about addressing our performance gap. The gap between what we know Christ calls us to and our level of obedience towards that calling. What, what is the Spirit saying to us about this? How will we open ourselves up to the resources of Christ so that he can enable us to be everything he calls us to be? That's my prayer for these days. I think it begins in surrender. It begins in affirming that this is what Christ calls us to. And then approaching him in humility and asking him to work in us to make possible what he calls us to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, to you all of our hearts and minds are open. No secrets are hidden. You know us for exactly who we are. And we ask that by your spirit you would come and cleanse the thoughts and imaginations of our hearts and minds. That you would able, enable us to love perfectly. That you would guide us in this journey and make possible what we know is not resident in ourselves. Enable us to surrender ourselves to the Spirit in ways that allow us to embody your love for the world. Don't allow us to escape from your calling with rationalizations or excuses. but help us to embrace your word and exemplify your love. Would you stand to receive the benediction, please? May the love of Christ be seen in all your words and deeds, now and always. Amen. Go in the power of the Spirit.